The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You're in Genesis 3. Let's look together at verse 1. Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know that I am absolutely nothing and my words are are worthless. But we also know that your words are powerful and that your spirit takes them and uses your words to pierce our hearts and to reveal to us who we really are, to help us understand 
what this life is really all about, to help us understand you, because it's in understanding you that we really understand what eternal life is in the first place. And so this morning, Lord, our task is no different than it is any other Sunday morning. We are not here to entertain ourselves or to just distract ourselves or make ourselves feel better with little truisms and, and things that might, might uh, resonate with our emotions but have no effect on our heart. Lord, we are here today because we want to interact with your word. And so, Lord, everything else is peripheral to that. I pray that that will be true in each and every heart in the room this morning, that everything else is secondary, this is primary. And so, Lord, we don't come seeking experience. We come seeking change of heart through your word. We want to see you and know you and be changed to be more like Jesus Christ as a result. And so, Father, we come and we beg you this morning, please, please speak to each and every heart in here by your Spirit through your word. May the truth of these words that Moses wrote down thousands of years ago, but that were inspired by you, may the everlasting truth of them be as relevant to us in our situations, in our hearts, in our families, in our nation today as they were when they were first written. Help us to see your word, rejoice in its truth, be convicted by what is wrong in our own hearts as we see it reflected in the truth of the gospel, and then be changed into the image of Jesus Christ, we pray. Please be with us this morning. Please be with me. May my words accurately reflect your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. I suppose um, that this is a common occurrence at this stage of life uh, as a parent, but we're in a stage right now with our kids where I feel like we are constantly correcting them, or uh, I don't want this to sound like discipline, you'll understand in a moment, just trying to help them to be precise in their speech and in their writing. In other words, to use words correctly and to use the right words at the right times and in the right ways, just to to be able to say exactly what they mean. Um, As an example of this, Jamie normally does the lion's share of the schooling in our house, but every great now and then I get brought in as an expert consultant in some minutia of whatever she's uh, working on. That's a joke, by the way, okay? Okay. I get brought in to help with this or that. Normally, it seems like it's math. I loved math growing up. She hated math growing up, so it's a good, it's a good trade-off for us. And a few weeks ago, I was helping Nathaniel do a math problem. And I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was multiplying dollar amounts. I know it was something with dollars that he was working on. So I watched him do the problem, and he multiplied or added or whatever it was he was supposed to be doing. And he got the right number, but he forgot to put the dollar sign. And so I did what any good teacher should do. I marked it wrong and told him to do it again. And I was hoping when I did that, I was hoping that he would stop and go, no, I know this is the right answer. Oh, look, I forgot. that." No, he didn't. So he just starts erasing everything that he had just done. And he goes and he does the problem a second time. And, of course, he comes back up with the same exact answer that he did the first time because his math was right. But, again, he forgot to put the dollar sign. And so I looked at it and I said, it's wrong, marked it wrong. Do it again, and now, now he's starting to get a little exasperated, which if you know Nathaniel, he, he can do that from time to time. And uh, he's getting a little exasperated looking at it, trying to figure out what he did wrong. He's like, Dad, it's right. And I said, no, it's not right. And he finally asked the million-dollar question, so what did I do wrong? He finally now asked for help, and I said, why don't you tell me what you're multiplying or adding or whatever it was? He's like, 
oh. And then he realized as he started to say it out loud that it was a dollar problem. And he added the dollar symbol and made the answer correct. And I said to him at the end of that experience, something that I have repeated now multiple times over the past few weeks, is that there is a world of difference between giving someone five and giving someone five dollars, right? Okay, if I walk up to you and I say, hey, give me five, you're going to do one thing. If I walk up and say, give me five dollars, you're going to laugh at me. That's completely different. Um, And I was trying to help him understand how he needs to be precise in his speaking, his writing, his math problems, so that he will do things correctly. Well, I was reminded of that same truth this week in my study as I was going over Genesis 3, verses 14 to 24. That's where we're at now. We're entering this fourth and final section here in Genesis 3, which, as you can see behind me, I've titled Retribution and Redemption. And this will take us through the end of the chapter. But these verses are often given another title as well. One that I'm sure if you've been around churches at all in your life, you've probably heard. In fact, I may have said it myself in the past. Oftentimes, these final verses of Genesis 3 are referred to as the curse. In other words, this is the section of the text where God curses Adam and Eve because of their sin. This is where we understand how the curse that all of us are under came into this world here through Adam and Eve's choice. And yet, as I studied this week, I realized more and more that we need to be as precise in our speaking and our thinking as do our kids. Because if you look carefully at the text before us, those, all those verses here at the end, you'll notice that Adam and Eve are not cursed in this section. It's never, the text never says that. And we'll talk more in a few minutes about what it means to be cursed in general, just, as a, just so you understand. But notice by way of introduction this morning that only two things are cursed here in the text. Number one, the serpent is cursed in verse 14. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, all beasts of the field. This curse is targeted specifically at the serpent. Cursed are you. God is being very, very precise in his wording. Number two, you see it a second time down in verse 17 when God is speaking to Adam. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And again, God is being very, very precise here with his words. He's saying cursed is the ground. Adam's the source of that curse, and Adam will be affected by that curse. But I'm just noticing here that Adam himself is not cursed here in this story. We're just trying to be precise. In fact, as you look ahead to the rest of the Old Testament, you never see any reference to mankind being cursed because of Adam and Eve's choice. Never. Not once. Not even, it's not even like a, a, a little like secondary reference to it. Maybe that's what it means. You don't see that. And as you look to the New Testament, again, you never see even one reference to the fact that we're cursed because of Adam and Eve's choice. We need to be precise in our speech here. This section is not the curse. Now, let me be precise about one other thing then as well. We are cursed. Just not because of this. See, as you look at the scriptures, you see that there's a different reason why we're cursed. And that different reason is because we're lawbreakers. We're criminals. 
We don't live our lives according to God's holy standard, and because of that, we're cursed. And this also goes all the way back to Moses as well, just in a little bit different section of the Pentateuch. In Deuteronomy 27, 26, God says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Okay, you want to know why you're cursed? You're cursed because you don't do what God says you should do. Or you're cursed because you do the things he says you shouldn't do. Either way, this is why you're cursed. Not because Adam and Eve, our first parents, did something. We're not like bearing the curse of their sin continually. No, no, no. I'm bearing the curse of my own sin. It's my choices that cursed me. It's my disobedience that brought this on myself. I'm cursed because of my actions, choices, decisions, etc. I can't blame anyone else but myself, which then, of course, leads us back to the New Testament understanding of what Jesus did on the cross so that Paul in Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from what? The curse of the law. He's being very precise Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, curses everyone who's hanged on a tree. Paul is very precise. It's not the curse of Adam and Eve. It's not some generic curse that I'm not aware of. No, no, I was cursed because of my own choices. My own sinfulness cursed me in God's sight, condemned me before him. Jesus came and paid for all of that. He paid for Deuteronomy 27, 26 so that I don't have to, which now brings us back to Genesis 3. Because if this section that we're entering right now is not the curse, in the sense that perhaps I've thought about it in the past, then what is it? What exactly is God doing here in this section as he continues responding to sin, like we talked about last way, last week? Well, the easiest way to answer that is to say that God isn't cursing Adam and Eve. He is simply pronouncing to them What life will be like from this point forward in this new world of sin? They made some choices, right? They chose to rebel. They chose to say, we don't want to live under God's sovereign reign and rule. We would rather do things our own way. And so God says, okay. All right? You want to do stuff your way? You want to live in that kind of world? Here it is. This is what this world will look like now. It's a pronouncement of what things are going to be like from this point forward here in this new world of sin. And as you can see from my heading, part of those changes, part of this new way of living involves retribution. The word retribution, and it's an English word, it's not in the Bible, but it's good for this section here. The word retribution means to pay back what's right. If you, you can hear that if you think about the word for a minute, to retribute something. If I tribute, I'm giving, re is back, so I'm giving back what is right. If you harm me, if you wrong me, and I exact retribution, I am paying you back for what you've done. Well, this is exactly what you see here. Adam and Eve have made some choices. They've decided to live a certain way. And now, here you go. Here's your payback. Here's what you get. Here's your payday. This is obviously what you wanted, right? Because now you get to have it. Retribution. But at the same time, mixed in with the retribution, all throughout the section is redemption. And so if retribution is getting paid back what you've rightfully earned, then, of course, redemption is getting what you haven't earned or getting what you don't deserve. 
And I love the way, I love the way that God mingles the thoughts together. All throughout verses 14 to 24, every week we're going to come to this, we're going to see it mixed in in a different way, in a different manner here in front of us in the text. Them getting what they deserve and yet getting what they don't deserve at the same time here in the story. And so beginning this morning, continuing for the next probably two, maybe three Sundays, we're going to come to this section of the text to consider God's sec- uh, se- the second half of God's response to sin as he pronounces what life is going to be like here in this new world of sin. And today we're going to start with verses 14 and 15. And let's just begin by setting the stage, okay? Remembering where we were at last week. We started last week by looking at verses 8 to 13. This was God's initial response to sin. And when we did that, we saw or recognized that God had three responses to sin right off the bat. Do you remember these? Number one, he started by coming to man. Okay, he humbled himself. He came down to the garden to seek them out. That was his first choice or action there in after they had sinned. Number two, he called them. Where are you? And I told you that question wasn't designed to locate them or gain information. The question is designed to expose them, to to have them come out and say what they've done. And sure enough, it does that. You see them come out and, and tell what they've done when God says, where are you? He doesn't say, I'm over here under the bushes. He says, this is, I'm naked. I hid myself because I'm naked. He's, he's exposing a sin. Third, God confronts them. He specifically pointed out their sin to them, drawing attention to their disobedience. Do you remember that? Helping them see that what they have done has violated the word and will of God. And what he's doing in all of these things is he's trying to get them to acknowledge their guilt and or show some remorse. Well, he gets half of that. I see no indication of remorse in verses 8 to 13 from either Adam or Eve. But I see their guilt, and we'll see it together in a moment. But before we see that, remember man also responded in certain ways in those verses. First, he hid from God. God came to man. Man hid from God. He hid from his presence, from his face. He didn't want to see him. Second, he distorted the truth. Adam's comment in verse 12 is intentionally placing blame on Eve and trying to take it off of himself. But third and worst of all is he accuses God. Because in those same words where he's blaming Eve, he says, the woman whom you gave me. Remember this? Okay, He's saying, God, you're first and foremost at fault. Eve is secondarily at fault. Maybe I'm a distant third, but it's not me. He's pushing all these things off onto God and to Eve. But in the end, as I said, what are their final two words for each of them? You can look in verse 12 and 13 and see it. Their last two words for each person was, I ate. They had to acknowledge truth in the end. They ate. They violated what God had said. This is where we were last week. Notice also, and this brings us into verse 14, that Moses is following a pattern there in verses 8 to 13. God speaks to Adam. He questions him. He talks with him. And what does Adam do? He blames Eve. So God talks to Eve questioning her, dialoguing with her. What does she do? She blames the serpent. And so when we come into verse 14 here, we should probably be expecting that God will do the same thing now with the serpent. It's been his pattern. That God will talk with the serpent, questioning him, dialoguing with him. But when you look at verse 14, you see that the pattern ends with Eve. 
God talks to the serpent, but He doesn't speak with the serpent. For the serpent, no opportunity for excuse or explanation is given. God just immediately launches into His pronouncement against the serpent. And notice what that is. First, God issues a pronouncement against the creature itself, against the serpent. In verse 14, God says, Because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And these words here do not seem to be aimed at Satan. He's dealing with with a physical creature, something before him there. He's dealing, I think, with the serpent itself. He's cursing the serpent. Now, what does it mean to curse something? Because I think for us, if, if I'm right about this, that idea is completely foreign to us, maybe even funny. I remember my father... He was in the Marine Corps during the 60s, 50s and 60s, and uh, he had learned an Arab curse when he was traveling around the Mediterranean that he thought was really funny and he would use it in various situations. Some of you may be familiar with this, the fleas of a thousand camels and fester armpits, that one. Okay, you heard that before? He would just throw that one out every now and then if someone had done something to him, and it was just funny. He was never actually trying to be mean with it. Now, if you come up to me after the service, which I know three or four of you will now, and say that to me, I'm going to do exactly what you're doing right now. I'm going to laugh at you. I'm certainly not going to take you seriously. And even, even if you meant it with all your heart, that you sincerely hope that the fleas of a thousand camels would infest my armpits, I wouldn't be worried about it. I wouldn't go home and like, not be able to eat lunch because I'm like trying to like, like do something to protect myself from that. I don't take the curse seriously. But in the Old Testament world, they would have taken a curse of any sort very, very seriously. The Hebrew word here basically carries the connotation of someone being condemned to a certain fate with the expectation that whatever's said will happen. In other words, if I'm I'm an Israelite and I go up to another Israelite and I say, look, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits, I'm expecting that this will occur. And guess what? You are too. It's a very, very serious thing to curse someone. And so when you see this coming up in the Old Testament, you recognize that there's a lot of significance placed on it. There's threats of being cursed. If you don't obey God's word, you can be cursed in this way or that. And people are afraid. Those curses are intended to act as warnings and guides and things to keep you away because they're taken very, very seriously. But this one here... This one is even more serious than the others because this is one of the rare occasions where God himself curses something. You don't see this a lot. A New Testament example would be right before Jesus is crucified. Remember, he's walking into Jerusalem and he sees the fig tree. Remember the story? And there's no figs on the fig tree. And so he says, cursed are you. May nothing ever grow on you ever again. And the next day he comes by and the disciples look at the same fig tree and what had happened to it. It had shriveled up and died. See, when God curses something, it's not just the expectation that something's going to happen. It's the certainty that something's going to happen. Something is being condemned to a certain fate with the certainty that that thing will occur. So this is, this is a very serious thing to see here. Notice the details of the curse that's given. Number one, the serpent is going to be singled out from all other livestock and beasts of the field. God said it's forever going to be treated differently 
than all these other creatures, above all livestock, above all beasts. God is being very, very precise that this animal, this creature, is different now as a result of this. It's condemned. And number two, the serpent will go on its belly and eat dust for the rest of its existence. And some people, when they read those words right there particularly, they go, oh, well, prior to this, the serpent must have had legs and like eaten normal serpent food like kittens or whatever. And, and so... After he did this, his legs must have fallen off, and now he's just eating dirt. Well, um, not to be overly logical with you, nor to insult your intelligence, but do you know any serpents that eat dirt? Anyone? Uh, the kids and I went to um, Animal Jungle this week up on Holland Road. How many of you have ever been to Animal Jungle? Raise your hand. Okay. If you've never been, you should go there. We've been going there for years. There's lots of animals and stuff you can look at. It's great for your kids. So we're in Animal Jungle, and we go into the reptile room which we've been in dozens of times in the past, and we're looking around, and they keep little snakes and little cages up on top and big snakes and big crates, cases, whatever, down below. And as I'm looking in the little cases at the top, I notice that a lot of the cases have a little dead baby rat that they had dropped in there. Apparently, we had come at feeding time, okay? So I'm hoping at this point now that I'll be able to see a snake eat the dead baby rat. But every crate I looked in, nothing was happening. Either the rat was gone, so they were already eaten, or the snakes just curled up and sleeping or whatever snakes like to do in their spare time. That's what they're doing. So I was kind of disappointed. We're getting ready to leave the reptile room to continue looking around. And as we're walking out, we see this family like all staring like this into one of the lower cases on the bottom. So we walk over and we look and we go in. This is what we see. See it? Here, I'll move over to the side. You can't see the snake too well because he's hiding in the uh, little wooden thing here. But there's the rat. One big snake. It's time for his dinner. So we're watching this. Oh, hey. Getting special treatment now. It's going to be a show here. Wait. We're watching this. And the rat's running all over the place trying to escape, right? He's trying to check all the little vents they have for the, for the snake to breathe. He's trying to get out. He's running even into the wooden thing. And every time he does, I think this is the end. But the, the family that was standing there, they must have known something about snakes. They said, no, the snake won't, won't lunge while he's in there. There's not enough room for him to strike. So I'm kind of like, oh, well, this is pointless. Then the snake starts to come out. Anyone getting the heebie-jeebies at this point? The snake starts to come out, and he kind of slithers up the side for a moment. And then he lays himself down right in the middle over there in the open area. And he's just still as can be perfectly still. The rat's still running all over the place. Then he lifts up his head just a little bit. I mean, barely. And you can tell he's getting ready. And I'm like, I'm like mixed emotions at this point. There's a part of me that's like dreading the moment of the strike. Another part of me is fascinated and wants to watch it, you know. And so I'm like, like not wanting to look, but wanting to look all at the same time. And so finally, the rat, okay, the snake's up a little bit and the rat walks right in front of the snake and you're like, this is the end. And the rat touches the snake's snout. The snake jumps back like he's afraid and goes and hides in his wooden thing again. <laughs> you can turn lights back on. Talk about anticlimactic from a few weeks ago. Apparently the snake wasn't hungry, and so after a couple more minutes of sitting there, watching it, hoping to see something, the, the animal jungle worker comes by and he's like, oh, he's not hungry, and he unlocks it, pulls the rat out, and walks off. And that was the end of the story. Uh... I share this with you because it was, yeah, why? Why would I share that story with you? Some of you are going to have nightmares now. I apologize. 
I share this with you just simply because it was interesting to me that the knowledgeable staff there at Animal Jungle, when it came time to feed their snakes, didn't walk around with a bag of topsoil in order to drop a little lump in there for them, like, here, have dinner. They're, they're not eating dirt, right? They're eating normal serpent food, whatever it is serpents eat, like this. Now, whatever this verse is saying here is not a reference to the snake's diet any more than it's a reference to how the snake moves around. In other words, his legs didn't fall off. That's not the point of what Moses is trying to get at here. If you were an Israelite reading this or hearing this read to you for the very first time, you would have immediately understood the significance of the words that Moses has chosen to use here in the text. God's not cursing the serpent with a new diet or a new form of movement. He's cursing the serpent to subjugation and humiliation for all time. Because that's the significance of lying in the belly, lying on your belly in the dust. If you're a king and you've just defeated another king in battle and you've captured him, this is what you're going to do to him. You're going to lay him out in front of you on his belly, face down in the dust, as a visible symbol of his humility before you, showing that you have defeated him, that you have conquered him. And so the imagery that God is using here would have been clear to the first readers that God is condemning the serpent to perpetually maintain the symbol of humiliation and subjugation for all time. It would be a regular reminder of what had happened here in the garden. Second, notice that he issues a pronouncement against Satan as well, which, of course, is the power behind the serpent. And that's what verse 15 is all about. And I know that Satan is in the serpent and the, the two are, are kind of one in the story. But clearly, there are two people, two excuse me, creatures, two characters here that are, are, are being looked at. And so verse 14 seems very focused on the serpent. Verse 15 seems focused on Satan himself. Some people, uh, you notice in verse 15 that there's supposed to be perpetual hostility, enmity between the serpent and the woman. You see that? And some people read those words and they're like, aha, this is why people don't like snakes. Right? All of you who had the heebie-jeebies right there, that was, that was why. It's because of verse 15, because it specifically says that they won't like each other for the rest of time. Okay, well, no, no, no. I don't, I don't think that's the point at all. If you really want to argue that, you know, you see in Genesis 3 why people don't like snakes, and maybe you could do that back in verse 14 when God's cursing it above all the other animals, but... That's definitely not the point here in verse 15. No, as you look at the whole verse here, I think it becomes pretty clear that something much larger than simply not liking snakes is at work in verse 15. Something bigger is going on. In fact, this one verse is so special that it's given its own technical name. Did you know that? That, that word, that name, is called the Proto-Evangelium. It's a Latin phrase It means the first gospel. Proto is first, evangelium, gospel. This verse is referred to as the first gospel, the very first time in Scripture that we see the promise of the Messiah. It's indicating that in these words we see this reference to the victory of Jesus over Satan, that Jesus is the offspring of the woman who will defeat the serpent, who will bruise his head, and that in the process the serpent will bruise Jesus' heel, but in the end Jesus will be okay. You know, this is, this is the line of argumentation that you see here. Are you familiar with this? Am I, am I sharing something new with you? 
It's what I've always thought, at least in the past 10 years. When I've read these words, I thought, certainly, clearly, this is, this is about the Gospel. Well, I started studying this week, and I really had to start wrestling through, is that the real meaning? Is that the real significance of these words? And, and I'll help you wrestle with it a little bit by asking you a question that I think will put this in, in a very clear light. Would the Israelites, would the first people who heard this read to them or read it for themselves, would they have read this and thought, look, God has promised a Messiah to defeat Satan for us? Would that have been their understanding when they read those words? Oh, look, someone's coming in the future who's going to defeat the serpent. This is great. Well, you say, I don't know. I don't know if that's what they would have thought or not. How can we tell? Well, let's just look. Let's just think about it. Look through the whole rest of the Pentateuch. Do you ever see Moses like encouraging the Israelites? Oh, look, don't worry. I know things are bad right now. We don't have food or these people are about to attack us. But one day, one day the offspring of the woman's coming and he's going to bruise the serpent's head for us. Do you ever see that? Nope. Look ahead to the rest of the Old Testament. And all the trials and troubles that Israel went through, did they ever point back to Genesis 3.15 and go, one day, one day the offspring of a woman is coming who will bruise Satan's head for us and give us victory? No. It's never referenced. And perhaps most striking of all, when I look ahead to the New Testament, do I ever even see the New Testament writers making a, a reference to this verse saying, look, This right here proves that Jesus was supposed to come, that this was God's plan, that he was going to be bruised on the heel by the serpent, but that he would bruise or crush the serpent's head. Do you ever see anything like that? And the honest answer is no. In fact, out of all the many references to Genesis 1-3 through that are used in the New Testament, it's really quite amazing that they don't pick up on this verse and, and use it for the same reasons we do, or the same means we, we do. So, if the Israelites don't use it this way, and the rest of the Old Testament writers don't use it this way, and the New Testament writers don't use it this way, should we? Should I? And, and I ask it that way because this was my question for the past several weeks. As I'm wrestling through this, trying to come to an understanding of how do I make sense of this verse what, what is God describing here in verse 15 if it's not what I've always expected it to be? What do I see? Well, I, I, rather, than, rather than working you through every nuance of what I, I, I wrestled with over the past few weeks, let me just lay out for you as clearly as I can what I think verse 15 is describing. Okay, I'm going to do this hopefully as clearly as possible, but stick with me. If you have questions, we can talk afterwards. I think verse 15 is describing the ongoing conflict between good and evil that will characterize this world for the rest of human history. Let me say that again. I think verse 15 is describing the ongoing conflict between good and evil that will characterize this world for the rest of human history because of Adam and Eve's choice. All the rest of history, all the rest of time is going to be characterized by a conflict between two opposing forces. And notice, you you get this idea when you start to look at some of the details here. Notice in verse 15, God makes a reference to Satan's offspring. You ever ever looked at that and go, wait a minute, if, if, if this is Satan, who's his offspring? 
Like, does Satan have, like, a little harem somewhere where he's turning out kids as fast as we do at Cornerstone? Is that, like, how it's working? Yeah, I'm serious about that. Does he have sons and daughters somewhere? Well, no. He doesn't have offspring. He doesn't have kids in that sense. So, what's this referring to? Well, my assumption, which I'll defend in just a moment, my assumption is that this reference here to Satan's offspring is talking about all those who follow in Satan's footsteps in rebellion against the Lord. You see, I have to understand it that way, I think, because that becomes my base for understanding the next section of our story, which is Genesis chapter 4. Have you ever stopped and wondered why the story of Cain and Abel is there in the first place? Like, what value does that add to us? What does that do? What does it illustrate? What is it teaching us in Cain, the story in Cain, that we shouldn't murder? No, 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 no. We're, we're missing the point. I think that what we see in Genesis 4 in the story of Cain and Abel is a visual demonstration of the truth first talked about here in Genesis 3.15. A conflict between two sides. Between those who follow the Lord and those who don't. Between Cain, who wants to do his own thing his own way, and Abel, who is trying to please the Lord. And of course we see what happens. There's a blow struck. Someone dies. And then he, Moses goes on and talks about Cain's line, taking us down to this man named Lamech, who takes two wives and kills a man himself. What, what's he describing here? He's describing a line of humanity that is clearly not following the Lord. You keep reading in chapter 4, and you get to the end, and you see reference to this boy being born. His name is Seth. He's the replacement of Abel. And this weird comment is made at the end of verse four, or at the end of chapter four, that says, "At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord." I, I think Moses is being very clear: two groups: those who follow the Lord, those who don't. This is exactly what life is going to be like for the rest of human history. You're going to see it into Genesis six as we get ready for the flood. That there's only one man left, one family left that's calling on the name of the Lord, and everyone else has rejected him. This is where we're at here in the story. Conflict between good and evil. As an Israelite, boy, I would understand that. I would see the world in this way. That this is how life works now. That there are people who follow the Lord and people who don't. I get that kind of thinking. Notice also, as another thing that you need to think about here, the reference to the types of blows that each group inflicts on the other. You see that? The ESV uses this word bruise, which is a, a fine translation. It's great. The, the, word, the Hebrew word just means a strike or a blow or an injury. Uh, the NIV uses the word crush, which is wrong. It's not that violent of a word. It just simply means to, to hit, to strike, to blow, that kind of thing. What's important here, though, is that I want you to notice that it's the same Hebrew word used for both parties. They're doing the same thing to each other. The NIV, I'm going to show you this translation just because it helps highlight how our thinking, I think, has gone astray on this kind of thing, on this verse. But the NIV translation says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, that makes it sound like the, the offspring of the woman is like doing a death blow, right? He's crushing the serpent's head. And the, you know, the serpent's just striking at his heel. Well, no, 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 no. We're, we're, missing, we're missing what Moses is saying here. The Hebrew words are the same. Whatever one is doing to the other, 
That's what they're receiving back in return. You say, well, wait, 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 though. Okay, Stacy. But understand that one's being done to the head and one's only done to the heel. The head is way more vital. If you get a hit to the head, it's a bigger deal than if you get hit in the heel. Boy, are we overthinking this or what? That's what I think when I hear this kind of argument. Because, okay, if you want to be that technical about it, then if I'm out in the garden and there's a snake, what's he going to strike? My foot, my heel, my leg. Can I get killed by a serpent doing that? Uh-huh. So it doesn't have to be my head in order to be mortal, a mortal blow. I can get killed either way. We're overthinking this thing when we start getting down to this minutia of detail, trying to understand it. All I think that God is doing is he's just explaining that from this moment forward, there's going to be an ongoing conflict between good and evil that will be characterized by attacks one against the other. The battle is going to go back and forth, this way and that, for the rest of human history. And yet, in that battle, God will not leave the outcome to chance. See, that's, that to me is the moment when we have to bring Christ into this equation for this reason. Because in all of this retribution, this pronouncement of what is being paid back rightfully, there is the, the promise, the concept, even if it's implicit, of redemption, that God will not allow the conflict to go on forever, nor will he allow it to go in a way that is not in his plan. We have to read verse 15 in the light of Christ, because the outcome of the battle is not in question. Not at all. It's certain, because one day there was an offspring of a woman who really did land a mortal blow against the serpent, against Satan, and who was himself mortally wounded in the process. It's true. It's all right there. But the offspring we're talking about, it's not just a mere offspring. It's not just a mere man. It's, it's the God-man. And therefore, his blow could not be final against him. Satan wasn't strong enough. Death wasn't strong enough. The grave wasn't strong enough. Jesus conquered them all. And because we're in him, get this, we too can have victory. That's what we learn here. You see, as we look around us, think about this with me. We see that the battle described in verse 15 is raging around us to this day. It's raging in our society, is it not? In our culture? as sin and unrighteousness seeks to permeate everything that we see, do, and think. It's all around us battling against righteousness. It's in our our politics as sin and unrighteousness more and more becomes the law of the land. And we see these things and we're grieved by what is happening around us. Why is it happening? Because this is what life is going to be like in this world. We see it in our entertainment as sin and unrighteousness become the standard by which we entertain ourselves. You you want to have fun? Then go watch unrighteousness. Do you see the, the disconnect that this is what's happening? We see it in our families as sin and unrighteousness seeks to tear apart the very fabric of marriage, of, of parenting, of what it means to have family love. Every time you've seen a divorce in your life, you've seen the battle at work. And, and more than all of those, the battle's raging inside of us so that the flesh is battling against the spirit and the spirit battles against the flesh. Galatians 5, it hasn't changed. 
The battle is raging all around. How do we understand these battles? And perhaps more importantly, how do we fight in them? What's our role? What do we do as people who are trying to follow the Lord, who are in that group over there, we're trying to to live our lives for Him. We fail, yes, but this is our desire. This is where we've planted our flag. This is where our allegiances have been set. What's our mission in the battle? Is our mission to, you know, change society or elect politicians or enact laws or, or ban certain types of entertainment so that we can live in that camp? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that our mandate? I would say no. Not at all. If we can influence those things, we should. Let's be clear about that. If we can influence them, we should. But they're not our mission. They're not our mandate. Our mission, folks, is not to conquer, but to trust in the one who already conquered. You see the difference? Our mandate is not to fight, but to preach the truth about the one who's already fought the battle and won. That's our mandate. And this brings me back in my own thinking to to Paul's words there in Colossians 1, which are are so important to us as a church because they help us understand what our, our mission is. In Colossians 1.28, Paul said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? so that we can present everyone perfect in Jesus. Him we proclaim, not, not family values or social justice or righteous laws. That's not what we proclaim. We're not warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we can make everyone conform to our standards. None of those things are what we do. That's not who we are. We proclaim Christ because that's their real need. That's the real heart of the battle. We, they need Christ more than they need social justice. They need Christ more than they need family values. Those things are good and right, and we hope to see them growing and expanding through all families and people and nations and cultures around us. But it's not their greatest need. It's not that those things are unimportant. It's just that they have no lasting or real value apart from Christ. And as a result... We have no hope of seeing any of these things established in this world apart from Christ. There is no such thing as Christless morality. You understand that? What do you want your neighbors to act like? Well, I want them to be good neighbors. Why? Well, because I do. Well, you see the problem already now. Because of people wanting to build Christless morality into culture and into their lives and into this and that. It's why we are running out of any morality in our culture. You can't have Christless morality. You can't have gospel-free family values. It doesn't exist. It's like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. It's a myth. You can make people or try to make people conform into a certain role or standard, but unless you change the heart There is no change at all. You you, you see what I'm getting at here? The battle is not that we make this happen or we we set this thing on. No, no, no. We're not proclaiming those things. We proclaim Christ. And with Christ, guess what? People can be changed. And cultures can be changed. And families can be changed. And nations can be changed. And husbands can be changed. And mothers can be changed. And fathers and children and neighbors. 
See, with Christ, with the gospel, I'm now entering a realm where victory has already been assured. That's, that's the difference in the two. With faith in Christ comes assurance of victory. And so, while we still live our lives in this world with the battle raging all around us and even inside us, in Christ we have the assurance of victory that apart from Him, we can never have it all. And so as you look at Genesis 3.15, and you try to understand what God is saying here, as He's pronouncing, okay, what's life going to be like now? For the, now to the end of time, I want you to be honest and understand there's going to be a battle. It's going to be hard. There's going to be blows going this way and that. But ultimately, what I want to happen is I want you to be encouraged because you recognize that you are underneath the one, you are in the one who has already won the battle. We do not fight alone. Jesus Christ died. He took a mortal blow so that he could win that ultimate and final victory over sin, so that he could take that curse from us. And as I look at verse 15, while it's not, I think, the purpose of the verse, I do see the promise of the coming Savior, and I can rest in the victory that he won for us on the cross.